Welcome to 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarland Group. My name is Deb McFarland Enright. I'm glad you're here with us for this conversation on race. Our guest is Reverend Stephen Handy, lead pastor visionary, strategist, and partnership collaborator of the Gospel Message of Jesus Christ at McKendree United Methodist Church here in Nashville. I was introduced to Reverend Handy and his work as an audience member of a virtual event hosted by The Village Nashville, also a church here in the area. The power with which he spoke was something I had to share with all of you. He is a gentleman of considerable scholarship with an MBA from Tennessee State University, Masters of Divinity from Vanderbilt's Divinity School, and a Doctorate in Divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary. He talks of liberation, humility, and suffering as fundamental tenets in the African-American practice of faith in America. He speaks of resilience, strength, fatigue, frustration, and how all, every one of us, can reach the light of freedom at the end of the tunnel by simply, but intentionally, deconstructing the very tunnel itself. He outlines a process for us that provides a continual method of self-improvement by which to encounter our divided world using awareness, acknowledgement, advocacy, and activism as cornerstones of that process. He examines the stark difference between equality and equity and how one ensures our continued division and the other ends it. There is so much to learn. Let's jump in. Stephen, we are so excited that you have joined us on 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night. I'm about jumping out of my makeshift studio here, which, as everyone knows, is my two-by-five closet <laughs> surrounded <laughs> by pillows, um, which Clark Buckner of Relationary explained to me is the best way to pretend you're in a studio. So I'm sitting in this, in this closet because of COVID. We're still doing a remote, and, and I know you are so kind to kind of play in our sandbox and do the same thing on your end. Not, I'm not suggesting that you're in a two by five closet, but I know it's a little different than being across a table. So we'll have a, a virtual table today to get into what I know is going to be an incredibly rewarding and real conversation. So Stephen, just so everyone understands, I had my first encounter, well, I guess only encounter, with Reverend Stephen Handy of McKendry UMC in, here in Nashville by way of an event The Village Nashville put on with Travis, Chris Cummings, yes. right? And Joy was on as, as well. So there were four of you speaking about race after the murder of George Floyd. And it was so powerful. You were thoughtful and very passionate about what you were saying. And what I appreciated is took no prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in this discussion, it's, it's very, very important. I mean, times are wasting, right? And absolutely. the point of this series that we've taken on at, at 3 a.m. is really to help white people, and particularly this middle-aged white woman, understand a little bit more deeply experiences that we will never go through certainly to educate, right? But I don't want the burden of oppression to be, I mean, I'm not trying to unburden whites from learning about what's actually happening in the country, 
and I'm not trying to put this on kind of shoulders of folks who are the victims of the systemic oppression, but it really is, I think this is the way to have it be more present for us is to hear the stories and the anecdotes and the hopes and the dreams of people who have had to walk that particular lane, a lane I will never, ever, ever be in. And particularly at my age, will never, ever be in. But I'm hopeful that I can help to deconstruct, destroy, dismantle this social construct that has been around for literally hundreds of years and caused yes. much damage and actually mm-hmm. stopped civilization from being where it could be. So first of all, we just love kind of to place us in that moment when the village had their event and just talk to you about maybe what you felt the effect of an event like that did for the story of working to dismantle the racial social construct. Well, first of all, Deb, thank you for the invitation. I'm always humbled and honored to be in a conversation, period, with people unlike me, because in the midst of these types of conversations, contrary to what people might believe, I literally grow because it's an interaction. It's an intersection of people. And I contend God loves the intersection of people We have retreated and we shrink in these moments so we don't have the ability to lean into with a great deal of curiosity, what I call it, versus we we run away knowing what we know so we don't get the benefit of dialogue and conversation. So when I was invited by Travis, who's a good friend of mine, always preface that he's a good friend of mine, I said, why? Mm. primarily because I do enough of these and sometimes it becomes a token presentation, Mm -hmm. which simply means let us call in a few folk unlike us. Let us put them on stage and let's objectify them, not knowing that that's what happens. And then I will never be in that space ever again. Mm -hmm. And so when I was having a conversation with him, I said initially, I don't want to do anything one time because what it does, it doesn't allow for relationship building. I said, Mm. we're in a relationship. And by the way, I don't need another platform. I get to preach every Sunday. I get to do Bible study on Wednesdays. I get to preach in other places throughout the country. So I don't need another space to proclaim. So I appreciate the invitation, but I will do this If indeed there is a dialogical process, which means there are many of us engaged in meaning, however we construct that, while also having the capacity and the willingness to lean into a deconstruction process, which, by the way, doesn't end. So Travis being the lighthearted person he is, he said, sure, we can do that. And we went into this conversation with really no holes barred. And I said, nothing can be off the table, which means I don't know what will be said, but you have to allow the space to be the space and allow God to negotiate what he wants the hearers to hear and let it be. But please don't do this one-off conversation because it's not helpful. Mm. So it's interesting that your powerful contribution to that particular event has caused this new conversation. I'm taken by the use 
of token, right, as you began to describe the event and can only understand that, and, and this is because of other friends who have spoken into this conversation with me as I'm trying to learn, that like their, you know, their phones are ringing off the hook and everyone is grateful, but there's also a bit, which I certainly would understand, a bit of where have you been, right? <laughs> we've been yes. saying this for we've mm-hmm. been saying this for a while. And did it really take, you know, an eight minute knee on a neck for you guys to see it's this is really happening? And and I have to say, Stephen, it's true. It really I think as old as I am and as much as I've seen, it was so horrific and so unnecessary. I don't know why it clicked at that moment, but at that moment I think I began to truly begin to think of my friends who could be affected in the same way. And and I've heard, just because of my schooling, I've heard, you know, the two hands on the steering wheel, the no hoodie, the being objectified in a store, being objectified in literature, films, etc. It was that moment. And then there became this thirst of how can I understand, but mm-hmm. understanding is a luxury for those who are privileged. It's how do I then begin to understand to take action, which is different from, please just give me a to-do list because I can assuage my guilt and I can move on and I can pat myself on the back and say, look at me, I'm white, I'm privileged, highly educated, and I'm helping. And it's not a to-do list. Deconstructing systemic racism and a racial construct uh, when it is so insidious in the system takes an awful lot of work. And I appreciate that you come at it from a relationary standpoint, because you're right. It's, it is a matter of building relationships amongst people to be able to move forward, not in step, but forward to a particular world rid of things that have us thinking about the world as a pie, right? So mm-hmm. I've got this huge slice and why the heck would I give that up, right? <laughs> Or somebody else versus seeing it. I, I use tide. There's probably a better um, image, but you know that the tide would rise for all and making all of us better because of it. So I, I appreciate that, that that event has begun this conversation. And I, I will say that the conversation was real very quickly. And I think you enjoy certainly caused that to happen. And I really, I, as a, as somebody who was listening and watching the event was very thankful for. So it wouldn't seem as though it was one of those to do checklist things. And I'm sure that uh, Chris and Travis were equally as glad that it went deeper than it was. So as we jump to your work and jump to the work of not only at McKindry, but in the larger space of things, what is it you would like white people to begin to understand Yeah, let's start with that. And again, it doesn't have to be white people. I don't want to make it, but I think that's appropriate. So help me get out of this uh, hole I've just dug. (laughs) (laughs) So let me offer, I always tell people, let me kind of reframe the perspective on all of this. And it comes for me from how I was socialized. And I contend we have all been socialized a certain way. So when Floyd was need, I think that was a culmination of things that in America we had experienced, but kind of tucked away in our memory. It didn't impact us. 
So over the years, over the decades, Floyd's kneeling awakened some folk. Right. There were some other white folk who've been wakened before Floyd, but there's some others who came along. And I contend there was a continuum that brought you here. It mm. wasn't the incident. Mm. It was your deep understanding and lack of understanding that God knitted in your being that in that moment of Floyd's being knelt on people, a series of people were awakened like probably not again in history that we know about or we can document. But also that this kneeling was symbolic of people all of a sudden saying, oh, that's what happens to them? Yes. And we've been saying, you know, thank God for social media and iPhones that can tape things these days. This has been happening for 400 plus years. So I tell people, thank you for joining us. And now we need you, as the young people say, we need you to stay woke. Don't just go to the event and cheer Black Lives Matter. Put yourself on a course of awareness for self. And in the midst of that, learn your family's history. Because at the end of the day, I often say these words, and it shakes some folk. In America, you either came to America as a slave owner or as a slave. Mm. So I know my history. We came over as slaves. Most of my colleagues who are white in the Methodist church have never told me, but they've come over as slave owners, right? Their history, at some point, you track the history. So I tell my white colleagues, and they're all over the map clergy, non-clergy, is to create a sense of what it means to live in an equitable world, not a world of equality, because equality can be misinformed or misunderstood. I can be invited to the table, and you can offer me a loaf of bread, but I am 400 years behind. Yes. So if equity is equity, all of a sudden now you are trying to reposition the bread as not a handout. But now I get to participate in the manufacturing and the development and the logistics and the buying and selling of bread. Now I become a part of the enterprise. And when I'm part of the enterprise, then I co-create. Mm. So what has happened, I'm part of a Methodist church, right? And we do communion. In our church, we do communion every Sunday to remind people. But our history tells us that people of color were often given crumbs, right? We were given the crumbs that fell on the floor. We could not be at the table. We eagerly and excitedly were grateful for the crumbs when we serve a God who passes out loaves of bread. And so now that I'm at the table, I'm going to remind you that it doesn't stop with me. There are some others who also need loaves of bread. And those people are also made in the image of God. The challenge is living into the likeness of Jesus. So what I'm hearing is 
to put it into a way that just check for understanding. Thanks so much for the crumbs. Thanks so much for the place at the table. Thanks so much for giving me the piece of bread. That's not equitable. That's pity, charity, and assuaging guilt. What I need you to do is put me onto the design table so that I'm a part of from the very beginning of visioning, of putting a team together, of implementing, executing, creating a strategy, et cetera. That's where it's equitable. If I'm only receiving, then you haven't included me into the conversation. It's still an assuagement of guilt, a lifting of shame, a badge to say, see, not me, I'm Mm -hmm. helping. That's what Mm -hmm. I'm getting from you. I, I go to a piece that I heard, and I can't remember honestly which documentary, so it doesn't matter. And I know it's posted in his writings, but King at one point when he's talking about the benefits of the Voting Rights Act, which huge benefit, right? Although we still are having trouble even today uh, for next Tuesday, making sure everyone has access to voting and then can vote, not just access now. This goes to the point of view with the bread at the table. Thanks for that. But I have to be able to vote. Right. So he says very, and I'm sure many writings, but the one I remember the most is if it was only about the voting, but we are still, if you only provided and it's earned, right. That's not a handout. If you would just give us what you've given everybody else, which is a mule and 40 acres, but to not have this thing that is the engine of this country. And it does in fact, influence all of society. You've got to be able to build wealth. It's not being given. It's being able to earn on an equitable level. Otherwise, you're always othered. It's always othered. I'm actually thinking of uh, what Jared Kushner said yesterday in terms of, well, if they really want to be successful. (laughs) Yeah. What I learned from Devin last at our last podcast was I wake up every day. He does, not me. I wake up every day having to prove that I'm not your stereotype before I can even begin to have you see me, which I can't even imagine that. I mean, I have a little bit of that being a woman in business, but it's so small. But understanding that just the being, it's the essence. We also uncovered that in terms of learning about Blacks in a white world and learning about whites in a black world. He grew up in a a predominantly um, black neighborhood when he was little. He learned about what whites do. They're dishonest. They'll use you. They can be violent, et cetera. What I learned was what blacks are. That's so different, right? Essence versus action. And to try to deconstruct those notions, to your point, It's moving away from we are all seen in the same light and Mm -hmm. the construct is nothing but a construct of control. And you have to have people not buy into it. They have to believe it before I think conversations move forward. Otherwise, the othering is like, look what we did for you. Look at the opportunity zones. Look at the food we're giving you guys. Look at the schools we're giving you. At least at least your kids have a place to go for a day while you're out doing your work or whatever. It's this separate, not even equal, but it's comfortable because it's separate with the occasional integration if it's comfortable. Well, and it's interesting, Deb, when you think about kind of the origin of civilization, it's documented, it's historical that Jesus, this Middle Eastern Jew, 
was on the continent of Africa. Mm. So Christianity was birthed on the continent of Africa. So if that's true, and we that's documented, that's an historical fact, then Jesus invites Gentiles into the party. He extends an invitation for them to be fully whole, right? To be fully whole, where the Jewish culture were this God's selected people, God's chosen ones. But Jesus says, well, wait a minute, let's extend the table. Let's add more leaves to the table and let's add more chairs to the table because this is a a system of inequitable benefits and I'm trying to create equity for all people. In the midst of doing that, we come to America and America takes Christianity and whitens it. Doesn't widen it, it whitens it Mm. to the extent now that the brand of evangelical or Christianity in America is whiteness. And the whiteness gets to determine the theology. Mm. The whiteness gets to determine the ecclesiology. The whiteness gets to determine the doctrine. And so now a people who built civilization comes to America and is told they're three-fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. And we go, wait a minute. We have history, so you can strip us of our culture, you can strip us of our land, you can strip us of whatever you want. We're going to still be here because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So I don't care what barriers you put on us, like decimated the Native Americans in this country. We as people of color have decided we're resilient. We are not going anywhere either you are an abolitionist with us or you're not. So what we're learning is a lot of folk in this season want to be cheerleaders. They don't mm. want to cheer from the sidelines that Black Lives Matter. And we're going, well, that's a role to play. But we really need you to move from cheerleading to being an ally. And an ally is, is not the ultimate. It simply says, I'm now woke. I am now have an awareness about the conditions. But it doesn't mean that you've done anything, you're just having another conversation. We say an abolitionist is willing to die for the cause. Now, I don't know many of my colleagues who are willing to die for anything. <laughs> so now <laughs> I'm asking you to die for the cause of another people that you have enslaved. It's a stretch, Deb, at best. So my, my prayer every day is, God, bring us more abolitionists who are willing to get involved in public policy, who are willing to say, you know, I'm not asking you to give up your privilege. I'm asking you to share your privilege. Hmm. The other part of that conversation for me is always intriguing when people say, well, I didn't do that to you all. And I say, well, the system that you're benefiting from continues to do that. So you have to make a decision if you're willing to be who God has called you to be and to disrupt, because I don't think we're going to dismantle racism anytime soon, but I think we have these spaces of disruption. Floyd was a space of disruption, right? Because it's so embedded in the soul and the soil of America, you're talking about 400 plus years of this work. And now we are getting more allies who are willing, I think, willing, once they know more, 
willing to step over into the abolitionist mindset, which means you don't take a day off. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about double consciousness mm -hmm. as an African-American in America who is also uh, biracial because I have Native American in me, Creole in me, French in me. I now have to negotiate and navigate to what I would call triple consciousness. Mm. So every day I go out in the public square, I'm not black enough, right? I'm not white enough, but also I have to be who I am. So I become kind of a third consciousness person. I'm always negotiating space. I'm always negotiating language. I'm always negotiating context. I'm always negotiating community. I'm always negotiating relationships. And so you bring that burden into your step out the front door every day and you're juggling and you're processing all that until you get home and you don't get a day off from that. I don't get a day off from my blackness because my blackness will not change. I don't care how many degrees I have. So we have to overcompensate in America with education. And I was raised in a culture that education was primary. You, you know you were going to high school. You know you were going to college. You know you were going to get a master's degree. And in many cases, you strive to get a doctorate. So I'm a fourth generation educated person. So when I see my brothers and sisters who go to college and they're first generation, I celebrate that for them. I can't celebrate that for myself because that was part of our DNA. And it's critical that we support each other in making sure that people are exposed. Because I think one of the other challenges around this work is who has access to it? Mm. Who has access to the information? Who has access to the money? Even in our beloved Methodist church, there are people who don't know there's money sitting in committees, but because we don't know where they are, we can't write the proposals to tap into it. It's even within the beloved church that we've had these barriers and these boundaries set up to keep those who are privileged in their role of control. Mm. I've got a couple questions. So first, Stephen, how do you fight through the everyday fatigue? of what you've just described. Yeah, so um, I am a guy who believes in community. So every morning I've got a, a group of, of friends that we get on a call at 6.30, Monday through Friday, 6.30 a.m. by the way. We're on the call, we share prayer concerns, we share prayer requests, we share where God is moving in our lives, then we do a devotional, we rotate that, the seven of us, and then we talk about where do we think God is calling us today? And I always frame it in what is God calling me to solve today? What is the problem? Because you know, Christ comes into the world and he solves the problem of sin. So in my work, I always have, as um, Psalm 23 says, I always have the twins with me, goodness and mercy. Good. Mm. I always allow goodness and mercy to sit on my shoulders. And so I don't care what you say. I was raised in a family that you always knew who you were. You defined yourself. Your teachers didn't define you. Your classmates didn't define you. You define yourself. So I don't allow the naysayers because they are present every day in my life. I don't allow them to define me. And I have a group that we meet every morning. So we, we launch into this reality of who we are. And self-worth 
is it's not created, it's discovered. So in my being, God has constructed me, designed me to be worthy of who I am. So I claim that. And so when I'm sitting in these high-powered meetings and I'm sitting with these theologians and I just simply ask the question, so how do you give us access to what you know? Mm. And what the challenge often is in a system that is driven by power and control, they only feed you certain things. So I go back to the slave narrative of when we were talking about house Negro and field Negro, right? The, the house Negro knew things that the field Negro didn't. And they were literally designed often by coloration. So your color pigmentation allowed you often to be in the house because your skin often defined that you were more trustworthy. The darker you were, the more demonized you were. We still see that in culture today. It's today, yes. Yeah, still today. And so in the midst of me being in the house versus in the field, what the house did in terms of the meal, and you talk about the pig as a, a formative place or animal to eat, we were given the leftovers. So we were given pig feet, oxtails, chitlins. We realized if that's all we had, we made a meal out of it, but it wasn't healthy. And so my people have high blood pressure, high cholesterol based on the diet of the leftovers. But we survived even in the midst of what we were given because it's all we had. And now we're in places and amongst people to say, well, how do we do this differently? And so back to your earlier comment, how do we become the designers and the visionaries and the frameworkers and the executioners at the table in the beginning and not brought in to validate or work your dream? You know, Martin King talks about he had the dream. I contend Martin didn't have a dream. God gave Martin a dream. So it's really God's dream. And so when we start using language like that, it moves us out of the individual to a higher calling, to a higher purpose of our lives. And I think that's where the beauty of God is, because God is a God of diversity. And if we really believe that, we look around the table and we ask ourselves who's missing. And that's a prominent question before we start the meeting. And then we work on inviting and engaging and involving the necessary people who are missing from the conversation, which means that they're missing from this whole enterprise of wealth, which is the Constitution of the United States. It's predicated on land ownership. Right. So right then and there, there are people who were written off, written out of the Constitution of the United States. Although the language may say equity, or should I say equality, it, it really wasn't. And so how do we reclaim, reframe, and make the determination that we're going to lock down some of these barriers, we're going to say no more of this, and we got to start primarily, I continue, we got to start primarily in the church, which is still one of the most segregated institutions or organizations in the world, in particularly in the United States of America. My denomination is 94% white and 6% people of color. In 68, when we merged black and brown people, that number was the same. So in 50 plus years, 
We have said we want to be a global church. We said we believe in equity, but the evidence, I tell people all the time, you can talk and you can preach and you can write. Show me the evidence of where the shift has occurred. Right. And don't do it in a tokenist way by taking a photo with people of color around a conference table with white people to say and put in your brochure. Exactly. Gosh, I'm just flooded with questions. I want to go back to the notion of church, particularly for African-Americans. And I guess one question I have is when brought to America and given the leftovers and the crumbs and the pig's feet and the oxtail and the chitlins, why didn't African-Americans stop believing in God? Once again, civilization was birthed out of Africa. We had years of knowing who God was, hmm. and it may not have been how white folk described it or defined it, but we understood that God would see us through because this place called America wasn't our destiny. And we understood that God, like the Israelites, we always related to the Israelites. We always related to their 400 years of, of enslavement. And so that's our example, how God delivers. And so the biblical text for us is always through a different set of lens. It's through a lens of not only proclamation, but it's also through a lens of what I would often refer to as liberation. So you have the white evangelical church often kind of defined. They don't talk about liberation. Mm -mm. They talk about celebration. So you talk about a people who are talking about liberation and humility and suffering. So we see suffering as a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Where in often in white culture, suffering is a bad thing and you want to avoid it at all costs. We contend we're more like Christ when we suffer because we know Christ through the Holy Spirit, will deliver us out of that suffering. Now, suffering is going to be right around the corner again, Deb, but mm. at least we are in a place to be strengthened in the midst of suffering. I was on a call two days ago, and we were talking about suffering. And I said, one of the challenges of the Christian faith is we have a theology of celebration, but we don't have a theology of suffering. And when we can write a theology of suffering, which what does it mean to follow Jesus? then I think we can start to rectify and reconcile some of these wrongs that we've created in terms of what is Christianity in America. This is so interesting. So what could you say to this white person on the other side of, of the laptop in terms of getting ready to understand suffering? Well, that, that's a really deep question. One of the things I would say is befriend someone who is not like you, meaning befriend a person of color. And simply don't tell them what you know. Allow them to lead you into a conversation of learning and of unlearning. And stay in that conversation for a season, not for two cups of coffee, yeah. but decide that you value what this would become. You know, because scripture says we have not yet been um, reveal what we are, but we are becoming. And so allow that time frame to persist for a season 
And then every day you go home, you journal what you're learning about yourself. Don't focus on anybody else. This is about deconstructing your worldview of how you've been taught and this idea of how others have had to assimilate in order to be valued. So befriend someone unlike you. Number two, in terms of listening, read what is offered. That means read things that you don't know about so you can be informed. Now, information doesn't transform people. Thirdly, I would say that you have to seek forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful spiritual tool. And so we have to literally purge ourselves of all of this mess and junk and distortions that we have inhaled and it's become a part of our being. And so now we have to detox our spirit because the spirit of evil one of the things I tell people all the time is in the Methodist church, when you've taken a vow of baptism, you have said, and we often don't remember, that you would go up against, you would fight evil in any forms that it would present itself. Now, most of us don't remember our baptism, and most of us don't remember those words. If you go back and study what you said you would do in your baptism, and I think it crosses denominational lines, there is always language about dealing with evil. So you have to see the systemic systems that have divided us as evil and not as beneficiaries for some and not for others. Wow. So I hope you and I can continue this conversation. Absolutely. Because I'm completely humbled by it. I do feel indicted by it and not in a negative way, just like this can be really comfortable. Just doing this podcast is really cool and talking, you know, uncomfortably with people. That's great. But I could fall into the, yeah, look what I'm doing versus forgetting what I'm trying to do, which is to begin to understand, but being patient in getting to that understanding about how to begin the dismantling. So you've just given three great steps everyone can take, no matter your color and no matter Absolutely. your experience, right? Because mm -hmm. that's you're not speaking in terms of, well, if you want to be woke for people of color, this is what you do. You're saying this, look, as someone who wants to walk with all people on this earth, these are three things that you can do. So I appreciate that. I look forward to our next conversation. But I also want to ask, in this national conversation, who's missing from this conversation? Yeah. And some of my colleagues would maybe push back on what I'm about to say, but I contend this conversation has to be, it can start with black and brown people, but it has to be a global conversation because if we can disrupt the framework of race, then we can deal with prejudice against women. We can deal with bigotry in other areas of our lives. We can deal with the other isms but you can't deal with the isms unless you deal with race as foundational to the deconstruction and disruption of America. So it's always race and. So Deb, I tell people, you just can't say race anymore. I'm not sure you ever could. Race is where we start, but it's always connected. It's integrated with something else. So sexual orientation is an example. So if we can deal with the realities of how race was not only constructed, 
but has gained momentum around power and control, if we can find a way over time to develop the alternative, I think we get a shot. So I don't think it's my children. I think it's potentially my children's children who will live in a different world because we've done this hard, intentional work. And so they can look back and say, well, my grandfather, right? Just like I can say, my grandfather literally spent time with Albert Einstein. And so in the midst of that kind of Christian Jewish dialogue, I think we've got to continue to work on all of these areas Black people are at a disadvantage because we're the only group that was forced to come here. Everyone else kind of decided this was a good idea. Now, they may have caught, caught hell when they got here. They were discriminated against absolutely at a very high level. But particularly Africans were the first people who were enslaved to come here against their will. So now you start to think about who else is missing? I'm part of the General Commission on Religion and Race for the United Methodist Church, and we're trying to create the capacity for the Methodist Church to be an equitable body of Christ. It is the most diverse board of all of our agencies. So we have people from Germany, we have people from Manila, we have people from Japan. Because we're a global church, we have Native Americans. So you you name the creative order of God and people, they sit around that beloved board of directors for G-Corps. And let me tell you what I experience every time we have a board meeting. I am enlightened about what I don't know and about my own prejudices that have been developed over time. And this group of people who bring their own cultural sensitivities to this work, they're authentically themselves causes me to continue to realize I've got work to do too. Mm -hmm. The beauty of that work is my colleagues around that table are willing to walk with me. And I think that's what we have to do, Deb. We got to be willing to walk with each other on this journey of deconstructing and disrupting racism and, and whatever your and is, you add it in the work that you're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you. I can see that table in my mind. That's just amazing. It's a kingdom table, right? Yeah. So I always tell people, so just imagine what the kingdom looks like. Mm. And I think what we have done to theology and Christianity, we're trying to preach people into heaven. And God's trying to get heaven on earth. Mm. (laughs) And so there's this dichotomy (laughs) that we're fighting against. And it's a well, time out. Where are there glimpses of the kingdom? And if we look at Jesus, and we always want to put Jesus in the, in the synagogue, right? And, and Jesus spent time in the synagogue. But if you look at the biblical text, most of his time was in the marketplace with people he wasn't supposed to associate with. So this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, is biracial. And he's not supposed to even talk to her. Where we are building barriers, Jesus is always building bridges. So are our words building bridges? Are the places that we go, are we building bridges? Are the people that we're engaging in, are we building bridges? Or are we adding to the barriers? Wow. Yes. Yes. 
This has been amazing. But I did want to get in these four point action steps you kind of have. And I know you're working on a, a lot of different resources, but would you talk about those steps starting with awareness to help guide, I think, what could be some first steps into this work? Absolutely. And thank you for the invitation. Let me go back real quick. And as we talk about comfort in this work, comfort is seductive. So let's be careful how comfortable we are becoming in this work. So I just need to say that. Um, it begins for me in this journey of trying to ask God, how can I contribute to the work that others are doing? And so I thought about that framework. I came up with four A's because I think for me, I got to be very simplistic with this. It starts with awareness of self. Who am I? Who have I become? And who has God designed me to be? And that's a continuum. So I have to be clear about my identity. So that means I've got to look out my history and go back as far as I can. And, and part of our history in, in my dad's side of the family is I'm a fourth generation pastor. So we're pastors or what I call Levites with this <laughs> tribe of Levites. The other part of that was we were politically engaged. My great grandfather was elected to the House of Representatives in Mississippi. And the fourth time he was elected, he got you got to run out of town to Kansas City. So I always wondered why I got this thrust for speaking out against injustice. It's part of my DNA. So I invite people to, to look at your lineage and, and study it and find out who the personalities and the people who helped you be who you are, because part of that is a, a DNA that's been inherited. So who are you? Awareness. That self-awareness now spills out into a communal awareness. Because of where you are, you have to look around yourself and have to be aware of those around you. Once you are clear about that, then you move to acknowledgement. How have you contributed to the good and the bad, or the progressive and the non-progressive, the liberal and conservative, however that bifurcation happens? You've got to determine how you've contributed. And we've all contributed in a negative way. Let me just say that we all have consciously or unconsciously, but we have to claim that and then confess that, confess that with God and confess that with our neighbor. It is liberating. Confession is a gift to us that God has allowed us to practice. And when we practice it well, we build better connection. I understand. So you move from acknowledgement to this idea of advocacy. I believe once we have become confessional, as a practice, as a spiritual daily practice, God moves us into this awakening of where we're supposed to be. So what and who are we willing to advocate for now? So the advocacy role becomes a role that it's just not about rhetoric or writing another paper or saying your truth. That now has to move into the last A, which is activism. You have to now put feet to your prayers. As the old <laughs> African proverb says, you pray and then put feet on them. We have to be engaged in this work. And there are so many ways to be engaged. So you have to be clear about your role. Some people will protest. Some people will have small group dynamics. Some people will be involved in mission. Whatever that role is, you have to be clear. Once you've done that work, then you go back into awareness. And the cycle continues because you're becoming interculturally competent 
about who you are and who the others are around you. And so now you value people because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Hmm. So you become a foot soldier, as you said, of bringing the kingdom here versus keeping things at bay so that the kingdom that's been constructed for you, right, through race, stays intact. Wow, that's... Yeah, yeah. and Kenda, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, for the longest, I used to give white people a pass. And I would say, oh, you're just ignorant. (laughs) But ignorance can be cured, right? Ignorance can be cured. Kenda helps me understand there's also self-interest. So in your discovery of self, you have to define your self-interest. So if white supremacy works for you, chances are you won't want to deconstruct it. And you will not want to dismantle it because it works for you. I'm an African-American in America. My privilege was earned. Whereas most of my white brothers and sisters, their privilege was inherited. I think that is the distinction, correct? I think that's exactly right on two things, the earned and the inherited, for sure. But it's also a matter, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, it's not a pie. It's not finite. It can't be. Nobody would construct it that way. So it's understanding that the giving up of privilege, in fact, extends the life experience and makes it richer, if you will, to use the term, because you're not locked in as well as you're not locking people out because of fear. It's if we Mm -hmm. contend that the only thing that's different, and I do believe this is true, is the color which our eyes cannot get over, right? And so because of that, the construct then works because visually you can demonize, you can other, you can uh, marginalize on something someone has no control over. Mm -hmm. And so deconstructing that is also asking you to say, get beyond what you see, not what you've been taught to believe, but get beyond what you see and understand the essence of someone. Again, it goes back to these notions of, Prejudice against whites based on action, prejudice against people of color, particularly African-Americans, based on essence. You can't get over that. And you've got to extend yourself beyond and have your eyes, in some sense, go beyond what is the surface, which we ask all the time for people to do, so that you can get to the essence of the people around the table. So it is important that the table you sit around, that board you were speaking about, shows what it can really look like for all those isms, multiculturalism to look like. But what Mm -hmm. you're also saying is it's the essence in each seat. So I note the country someone's from. I note the amount of melanin in in their skin. I note those differences. But what I also see in the success of this around this table has got to be everyone aligning with the essence in those seats. Otherwise, we do nothing more mm-hmm. than every other uh, board. We just congratulate ourselves because it looks like we have moved forward. Absolutely. So it's interesting, uh, Deb, 99.9% of our genetics of humanity is the same. Think about that. One-tenth of 1% 
is our difference factor. But we have a tendency to focus on the difference because the difference does matter. But in essence, we are so much alike. But we use that leverage point, skin tone, pigmentation, to say you don't belong or and or you're devalued because of your skin, which I can't change. So I always, I always find it fascinating that some of my colleagues love to go to the beach and get a tan. <laughs> and I go, well, wait a minute. You want to burn to get darker. You're willing to suffer in the sun, right? Get darker. And you're against me because I'm dark. It's a fascinating construct with whiteness. Whiteness often has a tendency to want to be darker, but yet the darker people, they dislike. That's a, that's a great image. <laughs> it, is a, it is a confusing world we have wrapped ourselves within. Stephen, we'll have to do this again. You'll have to promise that for Absolutely everyone who's listening. Will. And as an aside, I, I look forward to walking those three steps with you. And Let's I do, do appreciate this time so much. I've just, I'm indebted to you. You're a blessing, Reverend Stephen Handy. And I am honored that you came on at 3 a.m. What's keeping you up at night. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. And Deb, thank you for the invitation. I look forward to walking those steps with you. I am grateful to Reverend Stephen Handy for giving us his time and his grace in this important conversation. He implores us to define ourselves through self-awareness. He gave us three steps as a way to start that work to begin to understand how differently life can and should look for each of us. The first, befriend a person of color, not for a photo for Facebook, but for a friendship. Read and ask questions to utterly understand experiences you do not know and will never face. Seek forgiveness as an act meant for your healing alone. This gentleman preaches most Sundays at 10 a.m. Central Time at McKindry United Methodist Church. No matter where you are on this earth, you have access to his delivery of hope by simply going to their website. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. The McFarland Group is proud to present this special series on race. We are grateful to Relationary Marketing for their continued support in keeping 3 a.m., what's keeping you up at night, in production through the pandemic. Take good care of yourself and each other. Remember to go do good as you are able. My name is Deb McFarland Enright. Until next time.